know your moustache. From the papers. You're the detective, Hercules Poirot? Hercule Poirot, I do not slay the lions, <coughs> mademoiselle. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein with Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Good to be here. Freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. And role credits editor Adele Drover. Hi, thanks for having me. So this may sound a little different from where we are regularly. We are not in the 2SCR studio. We are on site at the lovely, lovely, lovely Randrick Ritz Cinema. Isn't it great here? Yeah, it's my local and got a rep for the Ritz. They've got a really good selection of classic films running at the moment. Tonight, we're, while we're recording this, we're missing out on Punch Drunk Love, which is part of the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, Film Festival here, which fortunately continues through December. Yes, it does. And you can see 70mm stuff here. It's great. Also, another thing in 70mm is their coffee, which you can drink and they give... I was going to say that. That's exactly what I was going to say. They have great coffee here. Yeah. And they gave Adele a marshmallow, which I'm very jealous about. So yeah, you heard it here first. Come to the Ritz for the marshmallows and stay for the movies. <laughs> so we are talking about the British Film Festival, which is in cinemas now, palace cinemas around the city and the country. But first we are talking about the latest Agatha Christie adaptation by Kenneth Branagh, Murder on the Orient Express. And we're here at the Ritz because they are hosting an exclusive season of this film in 70mm, the only cinema in Sydney playing that version of the film. Fantastic. So please do seek it out. And if you do at the Ritz, uh, it stars and is directed by Kenneth Branagh and has an all-star cast, Daisy Ridley, Judy Dench, Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, Johnny Depp, Leslie Odom Jr., Michelle Pfeiffer. The list goes on and on and on. And this is just the latest in many of dozens of dozens of Poirot adaptations. I have a clarification. Can we still call Johnny Depp a star? Like, <laughs> uh, he, he definitely appears. He's, he's built it in this film. He's, he's credited. And yes, but he does play a pivotal role in this. It has its ups and downs. Uh, uh, yeah, team, what did we think of this movie? Well, this was definitely a whodunit murder mystery that really builds up the whodunit. But you really have to care about whodunit. And uh, to be honest, didn't really get me from the beginning. And I have done my, I mean, I haven't, I'm not a big Agatha Christie uh, know-it-all. I haven't read any of her novels, but I have seen the 1970s film, which this one um, is an adaptation of, as well as the novel. And um, yeah, look, I've got to say, I probably preferred the 70s version of it. I've just got to... just was better. Pardon the train metaphors, because they're going to come thick and fast, but this film derailed pretty quickly for me, you know? That's one. <laughs> well, they're going to just keep chugging along. Anyway, so the point is, this film just did not get me. I mean, the thing is, the film tries to balance out camp, cheesy, and serious emotional tones, but makes the hash of pretty much all three of them, and which is kind of sad, because in 70mm, a lot of this film is pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah, um, I was just sitting watching and thinking, why and who is this film for? And the obvious answer is Kenneth Branagh. Um, it's really fitting his old school tastes, right? Even right down to the 70 millimeter um, film choice. I was thinking while I was watching that 70 millimeter makes so much sense because the texture of that image just makes you think of a movie made in the 90s or earlier. And this feels like a 90s film. This is like the, the biggest winter blockbuster 20th Century Fox would put out in 1995. You know, it even ends with a song playing over 
the end credits that's based on the theme music of the movie. It goes with the all-star cast marketing and, and casting angle in a time when people care about movie stars less than ever. Um, it's all about big screen spectacle. Like they actually built the train and, and you know, huge cast just at the beginning of the film and what would... you you know, in any other production would just get cut out because it's an extraneous setup sequence. It's just, just there to show off the budget, you know. This was all globetrotting locations. Yeah. This was all Kenneth Brand. I mean, he you mentioned the song. He even wrote the song, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote, the, he wrote the lyrics of that song. Yeah, it was sung by Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer's great in this, by the way. I'm really loving her big screen comeback. Yeah, there were a few fantastic actors in here. Michelle Pfeiffer was my favorite. I did enjoy Judy Dench. I'm a big fan of Hamilton the Musical, which made Leslie Odom Jr., and which, for which he is very well known. Comparatively, he was not so good in this. Daisy Ridley was um, off Star Wars duties, and yep, she was fine. She was great. But Kenneth Branagh, I've got to say, I mean, that accent, that moustache, the, uh, Albert Finney's done it well. Um, Peter Ustinov has done it well, but I don't think he was so well cast in his own movie. Before we get on to Poirot, I, uh, just hearing about Daisy Ridley made me think that this movie showed she definitely has a, a long career of her ahead of her playing Kira Knightley. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, the thing is, this movie has a lot of people playing other people except the characters they're meant to play. I mean, and that's kind of the problem for the movie because for the most part, I was not bored. I was just indifferent, and that's a feeling that I don't think any movie should invoke in its audience, where I'm just sitting there wondering whether the person next to me has a mole on their neck, or whether, you know, the person on the right of me has an extra leg, you know? So just things, thoughts like that are wondering in my head, and that's nothing to do with the movie. But also something about Poirot's character. I think, look, Brandon tries to do something very interesting with Poirot's character, where he's trying to sort of heighten his OCD tendencies almost, to an extent. And that was quite interesting, but it doesn't land at all. In fact, it makes him more heightened and caricaturish than he already is, which is just sad. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to agree with you. I think that the emotionality wasn't there from Poirot. Poirot? Poirot. Poirot. As Kenneth Branagh says, a Poirot. As he constantly corrects in the film, people like me, Poirot. Hercules. <laughs> Hercules Poirot. I just just don't think he brought it. I mean, he did bring his A-game moustache acting, but uh, the emotionality of the character just really didn't live up. Yeah, I feel he was... I think many of them were just, we want to play these characters. We don't really have the accents down pat. We all kind of want to get together and have a bit of fun. Uh, You know, a lot of these movies, you kind of know... People want to, you know, have some fun. This was, I don't know whether this was a film story somewhere in lovely Europe, but just want to get together, have a few laughs and make a movie while you're doing it. Ocean, the Ocean's 13 certainly had that vibe and, yeah. and very in the best parts of it certainly did. It's like a North by Northwest kind of, like, yeah, we just, you know, relax, go over the world, lots of movie stars vibe. That yeah. was great though. That was great. Um, I agree with you about the lack of emotionality in Poirot, Adele. There are scenes in this movie where it feels really calculated, like they're thinking, okay, no one cares about this, you know, weird detective. We've got to cut to him looking uh, longingly at a photo of his wife and saying, oh, I am suffering. I have a heart. I am a real person. Can't you like me, audience? And it's just way too calculated to really work. I think I can feel a lot of trouble in adapting this to a film. This kind of really strict whodunit is, you know, it's traditionally obviously the territory of books, but also, you know, in TV adaptations, which have ba- have generally been created with the rule that you can watch it without, um, without watching the screen. You can 
get by just by listening as a lot of TV used to be made by. What I'm trying to say is that this is not a very visual film. It becomes just bogged down in words and words and words and details as the case becomes clearer. And at, by that point, I was checking out. I was bored and I was not caring about the avalanche of details that are now flooding over the train in the audience. And there are way too many details. I mean, and some of the conclusions he got to, I don't know how he drew that from. You have this name and therefore you must be this person. I heard about this thing that happened once along the other side of the world. You must be related to this. It just, yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense in that regard. Interesting detail to draw about Poirot's character, which Chris kind of alluded to. I'm interested to see how we portray genius on screen. And often a lot of geniuses, whether it's Sherlock or, you know, anybody who's supposed to play a genius is supposedly detached. And it's very difficult to combine their intellect with their humanity. And I think on-screen portrayals have always struggled with that, which I find fascinating because if you're somewhat intelligent, I think you're predisposed to being a prude, which I don't really agree with because I would like to think there are intelligent people out there who are also just nice and yeah. feel emotionally. Yeah. Uh, shout out to myself, but... Uh, <laughs> wow, you, you, you heard it here. You heard it here first. I'm waiting for you to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this... And I just want to point out one thing about this film, and I think Dylan also, also caught this in the cinema. There are 12 characters here, and this might give you a clue, but there's one scene where they invoke the image of a very famous painting, and I'm really not sure why. I feel like I, I felt a collective sigh around me, and it wasn't a sigh like a ha sigh, it was like a ha sigh. <laughs> It was such an obvious use of symbolism that, you know, it could have worked if this was played as a comedy, but it's getting very, very sincere right now. And I thought, are you really doing that? Yeah, there's, there's a few kind of tonal mistakes going on through the direction of this, I would say. The heavy hitting music, you know, was swelling at that point and they were really trying to make you feel for all these characters and at that point I definitely had checked out. Can I also say as well, um, going back to the point about this being in 70mm, which is such a great spectacle, it just didn't really feel like the kind of film that warranted 70mm. And actually I also read as well, they were like, Kenneth Branagh sourced the last four remaining Panasonic 65mm cameras in the world in order to put this together. And again, it just didn't really feel like a film that kind of warranted that. Yeah, I mean, the standard performance in this film uh, are by two of my favourite things, which are two twin eggs. They definitely deliver the most cracked-out performance you can ever see in any film. What happened to the train puns, man? <laughs> well, I thought I would just move on to more excellent ideas. Oh, I got the yoke there. Fantastic. So that was Murder on the Orient Express. But we are not just here to talk about Murder on the Orient Express. We're here to talk about the BFF of Film Festivals, the British Film Festival, which is playing around the country. Uh, it's been at Pal Cinemas. We've been hopping across Sydney, seeing a bunch of different things. Um, there's a lot that's playing right now. But one film we all caught over the weekend was The Death of Stalin. Adele, what did you think? Oh, should I tell you? Basically, the title doesn't really give away what it is. It's about the death of Stalin. It is also a satire of sorts. It stars a lot of very good English actors, including Jason Isaacs and Michael Palin, who don't even bother to hide their British accents, playing Russians in the 1950s. Um, yes, Adele, what did you think of this movie? This was the film that nobody asked for, but was just so, like, absurdly hilarious and I just got such a kick out of seeing all these great you know seasoned actors getting together in a room and just being just neurotic and absolutely hilarious I've got to say it was like Michael Palin was in there as well it it was so Steve Buscemi I thought this was hilarious yeah they're British accents there so they're actually playing uh communists 
uh, in the 1950s. Uh, yes, it was the mid-50s, I believe. Yeah, but they've wisely decided not to put on Russian accents. And interestingly, because we've got Jeffrey Tambor and Steve Buscemi in there, since everyone's allowed to use their natural accents, we've got a whole bunch of English accents, then you've got Scottish accent, then you've got, from those two aforementioned actors, American accents. So it's all a clash. Fortunately, no comedy Russian accents. But I actually appreciated that, you know, at least they, at first it threw me in the first, you know, the first sort of 10 minutes, but then I was on board with it and I much, much preferred it than someone putting on some sort of hack Russian accent and offending a whole bunch of people. It is interesting to contrast this with the Murder on the Orient Express, which does do a hack job of accents. So, you know, something to kind of remember. You can also do very funny and comedic things without preaching to the lowest common denominator by doing accents. Yeah, you don't want to do Kate Blanchett and Kindred in the Crystal Skull. Oh my God, that's the second week in a row of reference that film. What is happening to the show? But I mean, look, this, look, this film, i got to say, it was really funny. We're all getting very excited about the upcoming 10th anniversary of the best Indiana Jones <laughs> film, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So stay tuned to, fi- for, to Film Fight Club. 10th anniversary. Can you believe it? it was? Yeah. 10 years. 10 years. Oh my God. Yeah. Ten, 10 years of nuking the fridge, 10 years of swinging with the monkeys. You know, golden film memories for all time. I mean, if it gets Harrison Ford away from Blade Runner, then sure. Yeah. <laughs> that was last week. But, but yeah, but back to back to back to the British Film Festival. So this film, I did really enjoy it. The best scene to me, well, there were two great scenes. One was actually at the beginning, which involved the recreation, uh, the much needed recreation, for purposes of expediency of a concerto, which was very funny. I was hoping to be more scenes like that throughout the uh, film. It was very frenetic. It was very fun. The other scene, and it was pure brilliant political satire in the vein of Monty Python and so many others was a committee sequence where, in the end, all votes have to be unanimous. And how they go about doing this is very, very funny. So I didn't look, there were some slow parts in the film, but those two sequences were absolutely loved and were worth watching the film, I felt, all on its own. Yeah, I found this is a hard movie to really like, even though I admired it. Um, for people listening, to get an idea of what the tone of this film is like and how the comedy plays, it's directed by Armando Iannucci, um, if you don't know the name, you might know some of the things he's made. Um, the TV show uh, The Thick of It and the film adaptation In the Loop, as well as Veep, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And this, the, the formula for this film is essentially The Thick of It transported to Soviet Russia. It's the same kind of political arguments and the same kind of insult comedy, um, but played out with much higher stakes. But some, for me, at times, those higher stakes clashed with the comedy. I got what they were going for in terms of the really dark satire. But at the same time, I found it hard to laugh in this really dark atmosphere where people are getting shot in the head. And like the constant, it's the source of the comedy. But for me, you know, some of this stuff is also treated seriously. I think it'll work for some people, but it just didn't quite work for me. I'm definitely one of those people that it worked for. I think that I loved that it was so dark and bleak and did not shy away from the brutalities of war and people getting shot in the head and tortured and raped and all these kinds of horrendous things that happened in these times. But the fact that it sort of overlaid it with this humour, I it was this blend that I did not expect to like half as much as I did. Maybe my problem with it is because there's no one really to root for in this, which is by design, but it's a very it's dark comedy and and awful characters for two hours. Um, you need there's quite a misanthropic tone to it. It's making light of a horrible situation, in which is a way of dealing with it. But I found it hard to go with the laughs. Often, I think political films or political commentary is so heavy-handed so I think I enjoyed the fact that it was light on its nose but also what is very interesting is 
the film was strongest when it was quite subtle about the indications, for example, talking about the social life in Soviet Russia and the divide between the rich and the poor and how there are certain elites who actually have all the wealth. So these allusions, actually, the social commentary there, and Jeffrey Tambor's portrayal of Malentov, which was fantastically nuanced because he plays pathetic like no one else. I think he's the best pathetic, likable character there could be. Production design was fantastic. The way they drew out the, the as Virat said, the rich and the poor. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things to admire in this production. Um, so that was Death of Style. It is playing at the British Film Festival. The next one is one I saw with Adele, How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Now, this was a Neil Gaiman adaptation by John Cameron Mitchell. Um, it was Alex Sharp playing N. He had a bunch of punk-obsessed friends, and he meets someone called Zen, played by Elle Fanning, uh, in her, by my count, the fifth variation of Neon Demon in the past 12 months. And Nicole Kidman in what is one of my favorite David Bowie tributes. Essentially, she must have watched Labyrinth over and over again, and that's the makeup she, uh, get-up she has for the film. Virat, what did we think of How to Talk to Girls at Parties? I still don't know how to do that, actually. It's, it's something that I've been trying to figure out in, in general, and I think my friend suggested that maybe after this movie I might be slightly wiser, but I think uh, they completely missed the mark, and I was in for a horrid time. In fact, I'm quite a fan of Neil Gaiman's original story because it's a beautifully nuanced and layered story of coming of age and actually capturing a time. It's a very, actually, a period piece, almost, in the way the story is written with fantasy elements. But... This movie completely botched up its tone. It's supposed to be a comedy, but it's not funny. It's just insulting. Uh, insulting to women, insulting to a general sense of humor, insulting to the idea this film could be a comedy. So it's insulting in so many ways. I, could, I thought about, oh my God, how can a film be so insulting in so many ways? In a way, it was just, yeah, it didn't tell me what I needed to know, is how to talk to girls at parties. It's a very misleading title, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, look, I, I thought, that I agree with you. I think it was, it just missed the mark completely and it was insulting. And when they take you into this, the inner workings of a cult and kind of poke a whole lot of fun at it, even though it's supposed to be sci-fi, it, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be in, in favour of this cult or against this cult and... At times, I still wasn't even sure if this was sci-fi and if the cult was even human or alien or other. Yeah, this film, I mean, I love punk and I love it so much. And the one thing I will give this film is its soundtrack, but it painted this character with such broad brushstrokes. If you were punk, you had to have a you know, black leather clad outfit. If you were an alien, you had to be wearing lycra and running around the house and doing all sorts of crazy things and with synthetic music. It was very problematic in that regard. And Elle Fanning, you have all these wonderful performers, but they're not allowed a character or a script to really flourish. And finally, when the punks and the aliens did meet, I was expecting this great cataclysmic, wonderful adventure of two great sets of characters. And it was so anticlimactic and it was so disappointing in that regard. Actually, Actually, the one good thing about the movie was the fact it's music. I think it was quite uh, you know, one refreshing thing about the movie. But apart from that, the Neil Gaiman's original story, please do read it. It's actually quite a fun story. And it just tells you how mainstream uh, Hollywood just messes everything up. So that was How to Talk to Girls at Parties. The next film we saw is Mary Shelley, the biopic starring, guess who? Elle Fanning as the titular figure who wrote Frankenstein. And this is a period piece as well, in a sense. Uh, Virat, what did we think of Mary Shelley? First of all, I'm kind of sick of Elle Fanning playing these Lolita-type figures without actually any hint of character development or just any sense of 
realness. I think she's an autopilot right now. So even though she was supposedly playing Mary Shelley, she's once again, Elle Fanning playing the Neon Demon, playing Mary Shelley, which is fine. But after a while, you just kind of get bored of the shtick. But most importantly, I think this was the most British movie ever. I mean, the fact that it can take... Look, I'm a fan of literary biopics. I think uh, writers are the real superheroes. So I, I just... I'm fangirling over all of their, any literary biopic that ever comes out, even the worst. So that's fine. But the thing is, this is all about stoicness, about how to keep a stiff upper lip in the times of tragedy and travesty. Basically all the kind of Victorian English ideals. And you have these blasé, you blink and you miss it, sort of cameo appearances by famous people like Maisie Williams because she's from Game of Thrones and she makes a, you know, cameo appearance. Like she gets top billing, by the way. Okay. Wow. Can you, can you believe that? Well, I've seen it all, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this film, and this is the thing, it's very moralistic in, in many ways. They try, and they draw a very long bow with the points they're trying to get across, the ideals they're trying to get across with what is the focus of the story, and that is how the genesis on Frankenstein and how she came to write it. And I've read Frankenstein, and I adore the book. It's very, it's very, this film is, and its moral are very loosely tied to what is, in other senses, in many other ways, entirely a great book. And the pro- what's more problematic for me was Frankenstein is one of the great Gothic novels of all time. And I thought, wow, we have El Fanning in a movie about Mary Shelley. This could be a really great gothic picture. But hold on a sec. There are, I counted two scenes in the film that have really great gothic value. They're more interested in telling a historical biopic. And I feel there were parts where the director kind of wanted or thought, let's put our toes in the waters here, see how we go. But they weren't going well to go full pelt with it. And I was really disappointed for that. I was hoping for more of the sequences that we saw at the one great scene where they're hanging out with Lord Byron, played by Tom Sturridge, at that famous, famous event in literary history where they all decide to make the best ghost story, which was the actual genesis of Frankenstein, which wasn't given that much credence in the film compared to much else, which was much less relevant and much less engaging. Exactly. I mean, you make a brilliant point. For a film which is titled Mary Shelley, the movie was not about Mary Shelley, which, I mean, considering how many movies have shafted female characters after casting them in lead roles, this is exactly one in a long line of them. So, you know, I am not surprised. But also, it ruined my image of the romantics. I love Shelley. I wanted to have his golden locks when I was a young kid. And I love Byron. He had. He was known as club-footed bad Lord Byron, you know, as someone with a disability. He was someone I looked up to. And Tom Sturridge, God, that was a terrible, terrible portrayal of someone who I admired a lot. I'm actually going to disagree slightly. I actually liked his portrayal. The issue I felt was they gave him very little screen time. We only see him on stage parsley. The better impression we get is from other characters. And if we, if it was a film about him, we could have a much more room to develop. But as it was, we really didn't get to see Lord Byron I wanted to see. He's one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting character in the film. Yeah, but look, the problem is, who who's this film for? I mean, this film is not doing justice to Mary Shelley, which I'm really heartbroken by because she was a brilliant writer. I mean, and the fact is, there is still debate about what the genesis of Frankenstein is. So in a way, the heart of this film really does have a lot of dramatic value. But the thing is, the film is not interested in exploring any of that. It just wants to be the most British thing ever. Well, this was one that was definitely on my list to see at the British Film Festival. But judging from how you guys are saying, it sounds like maybe I could give it a miss. What do you think? Uh, I feel it 
is interesting. Uh, if you are a fan of the of that part of history and Frankenstein itself, it is worth seeing. Otherwise, um, there are, I think, other ones we probably prioritize, which we are going to talk about. Um, one of which is maybe film stars don't die in Liverpool, which Farat called over the weekend. Farat, uh, what did you think of film stars don't die in Liverpool? Well, film stars may not die in Liverpool, but audiences definitely do. And, uh, you know, so Boom. <laughs> but, uh, that's part of the problem. And look, I have no complaints about the acting in this movie. Both Annette Benning, who gave a wonderful, wonderful performance as Gloria Graham, actually, because this is actually partly based on her real life. It's been as film stars don't die in Liverpool is based on a memoir by Peter Turner, which is played by Jamie Bell. And it's basically this kind of tumultuous relationship between Ned Benning, Gloria Graham, this sort of washed out Sunset Boulevard kind of, you know, 50s actress who's now trying to basically relive her fame by playing theatre roles like in The Glass Menagerie. And she has a torrid affair with a much younger person played by Jamie Bell here. So... You know, there was a lot of potential here, but it just messes it up. Annette Benning is fantastic, but this film just loses it because it plays in one of the most tried and tested tropes in cinematic history, which is the use of terminal illness, and completely botches that up. We're actually going to be talking about something not dissimilar in a later film, but before we get to that, uh, we want to talk about Goodbye, Christopher Robin, which Adele also called. Adele, what did you think of Goodbye, Christopher Robin? So this one is the biopic and the story of A.A. Uh, a. Milne, the author who uh, came up with Winnie the Pooh, the beloved children's story. And at its heart, it's really a father-son type of story. And look, I did really enjoy it. i got to say, I was definitely the youngest person in my theatre session. I was surrounded by a lot of older people and it really is targeted to an older demographic and they will love it. Take your grandma. <laughs> Lovely. So that was good by Christopher Robin. And Virat, you saw the biopic of Eric Clapton. What'd you think? Oh, yeah. Eric Clapton, A Life in 12 Bars. I really, really, you know, enjoyed it in some sense, but also was frustrated by the end. Look, Eric Clapton's life needs, you know, the big screen. The kind of amazing screw-ups that have happened in his life really do deserve the big screen dramatic attention. So, you know, his we all know the famous torrid love triangle between George Harrison Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton and what that led to we also know you know how he basically went on a drugs bender after the passing away of his dear friend Jimi Hendrix all of these make an appearance in the doco so if you really love that kind of era this documentary captures it really well and it's also actually really good about the music and a lot of the music used is actually from the original studio recording sessions so if you really want to listen to the original sort of feel of that it really transports you into that time but also you do get a sense of you know, the humanity of, of the fractured nature of Clapton, of how he was just a terrible human being and he had to redeem himself later on. So this movie doesn't shy away from pulling its punches. In a way, I really did enjoy it because it doesn't glorify Clapton as Clapton as God, which people would say, but really just show him as someone who was just really damaged and who had to really earn his redemption. What's the name of the film? What's the full name? Eric Clapton, A Life in 12 Bars. Also, if you're a fan of B.B. King, you're going to love this film because it has a lot of B.B. King in it. Fantastic. Uh, one film I caught was That Good Night, which is William Hurt's last film yet released. It is about an aging author who, about, and about dying with dignity and who wants to go quietly into That Good Night. Now, I was very excited to see this film. I'm a big fan of William Hurt. Um, I had a, the one major issue I do take with this film is that 
every single line in this film, every single motion, every single action, everything that is said or discussed is about him. And that can be overwhelming, and especially when you have several characters who are just as, if not more interesting in many ways. Um, Charles Dance from Game of Thrones does make an appearance, and he's excellent and reliable as always. Um, it is a pleasure to see them interact, but when his character becomes apparent in who he actually is, it's a little all too late to be interesting. And the main premise of the film, main contention of the film, uh, which is very powerful, is only dealt with in very late, arguably in only the third act to a great degree, and it never gives enough time to really delving into it. It's really confronting and quite interesting premise, never so much as something like Last Cab to Darwin. So, yes, that is that good night for us. Glenn, I'm sensing that in this film by William Hurt, you were really hurt. Boom. We're getting, we're getting a lot of puns here in this episode. And the last film we are talking about, because it is the British Film Festival, is England is Mine, Virat. Yes, it, this was a biopic of uh, Stephen Patrick Morrissey, or Morrissey as we know him fondly. Apparently the second most famous British person alive ever. Uh, and this was a very terrible biopic, because once again, I don't know what it is about Britishness and... This movie once again tries to make Morrissey as the most British person ever, which in a way I think he is because he's a sort of snob who would talk about writing furiously for days on end in his room alone on a typewriter, which he did apparently for a long time because he just didn't want to socialize with people. But also, in actually characterizing Morrissey's early life, this just makes him like a teenage angsty wannabe teenage goth who just didn't have any social skills without actually, you know, trying to give him any kind of portrayal which is complex or three-dimensional. So it was really sad. So the, the British Film Festival will be playing at Palace Cinemas throughout the country and throughout Sydney. Do check it out. Um, there's a couple of amazing things that's coming up. As, as Chris said, the Paul Thomas and Anderson Film Festival is playing at the Ritz. The Disaster Artist, the new film about the room, has its Australian premiere at the Hayden Orpheum. I've got my tickets and they've just announced a third show with Greg Sestero, who plays Mark, as in Hi Mark, in the film. The Cine Latino Film Festival opens this week on the 14th of November. Please do check that out as well. And the Art Gallery of New South Wales have a very interesting film program with a lot of 70s New York set uh, movies playing, including Mean Streets and Dog Day Afternoon. So look forward to that on Wednesdays and Sundays in 35mm at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Fantastic. Next week we'll be back talking the Japanese Film Festival with the Japanese Film Festival curator. We'll also be talking Borgby McEnroe, Harry Dean Stanton's Lucky and Blade of the Immortal. So this has been Vrat Niru, Chris Evans and Adele Drover from YouTube channel Roll Credits. Adele, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed this uh, like little uh, makeshift setup we've got here at the Ritz Randwick Cinema. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> it's been fun. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies out from the Ritz. Good night. And make more puns.